Thanks for joining us for the Cybersecurity Podcast. I'm Peter Singer, strategist and senior fellow at New America. And I'm Sarah Sorcher, deputy editor of Passcode, the Christian Science Monitor's new section on security and privacy in the digital age. We think the most important and most interesting part of the cybersecurity story is the people behind the keyboard. On the Cybersecurity Podcast, we'll interview key leaders and thinkers in the field, going beyond the headlines to talk about some of the most pressing trends and newest ideas. But first, we'd like to thank Arizona State University for sponsoring this podcast. And as most of you listening to this are probably aware, it's National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. So for this October, we have a pretty mega podcast for you. In a few minutes, we'll hear from John McAfee. He's a security pioneer who developed the first commercial anti antivirus program, who's known now as an eccentric millionaire and is running for president of the United States of America. First, though, we're joined by someone who's already in the White House. Michael Daniel is special assistant to the president and cybersecurity coordinator. And in that position, he leads interagency development of national cybersecurity strategy and policy and oversees agencies' implementation of these policies. He also leads the federal government's partnering with the private sector, NGOs, and other branches and levels of government. And prior to coming to the NSC, Michael served 17 years in the Office of Management and Budget, including as Chief of Intelligence Branch, National Security Division. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. And so we're here right now, uh, just a little bit after the Chinese president's visit to Washington and the big headline out of that. Which had something to do with the OPM breach. I can say that. (laughs) Well, the big headline out of uh, what came out of the visit was this agreement where neither the U.S. or China um, would use cyber espionage to steal or support the theft of intellectual property. And so how significant was that agreement? So I think it was very significant. I have wanted to be clear that I don't want to either undersell or oversell that particular agreement. It is very important for a couple of reasons, one of which is that prior to that agreement, the Chinese had never made a public acknowledgement that there was a difference between uh, espionage that the president has – that we have acknowledged as a country that every country does uh, to protect its national security – and the theft of intellectual property and trade secrets and commercial information for the commercial gain of your country's companies. And so the fact that the Chinese were willing to make that distinction was very significant. That's a significant policy shift on their part. Uh, Another piece of the agreement was that we agreed to assist each other more aggressively in investigating and looking into uh, evidence of malicious activity emanating from each other's country. And that's also important because the Chinese typically have said that uh, they're primarily the victims of hacking and they have not really acknowledged that malicious activity actually emanates from China. So the fact that they were willing to make that acknowledgement and agree that they would look into it was also a big step forward. Now, I do not believe that this is going to solve all of our cybersecurity issues that we have with China. It will continue to be an area of tension uh, within the bilateral relationship between the United States and China, and the proof of it will be in how they uh, carry out their end of the agreement, which, you know, we'll wait and see how that uh, goes. So it's certainly not uh, the end of our discussions with, uh, with China, but it was a very important step forward. I think one of the questions around it is, though, Are they agreeing, pledging to do something that they've always denied doing anyway, so it's easy to agree, so to speak, to that? So I don't think it was easy for them to necessarily make the statements that they did. It required a a great deal of work within their government to arrive at a, uh, a willingness to make those public statements. I certainly take your point that um, to the extent that Uh, they had been denying that they carried out those activities, then from a policy matter, it may not appear to be as big of a shift. 
Um, but I do think it was an important one, and a lot of work went into that on the Chinese side. Mm-hmm. What will you be looking for? So we've, you know, you phrased it in terms of we don't have absolute commons. We have sort of a wait and see attitude. What are the specific things that you'll be looking for? Say three to six months out to be able to judge whether this was just verbiage or actual implementation. Well, I think as the president has indicated that you know we will be using our assets to and do the best job we can to see if we can determine that there's been a decrease in the amount of IP theft going on and other kinds of commercial espionage, that we can see a decrease in um, the malicious activity emanating from China, that they are cooperating and helping uh, look into issues that we that we raise with them. Also, that the dialogue mechanism that was uh, reached in that agreement for meeting regular meetings between Uh, On their side, the the Ministry of Public Security, the Ministry of State Security, the Ministry of Justice, a couple of other offices, and on our side, the Department of Homeland Security and the Department of Justice, uh, that those meetings are actually happening um, and that there's worthwhile exchanges occurring as a result of that. So some people, a few Republicans on the Hill in particular, are calling the agreement a carrot in some respects, but there is a pretty obvious threat of a stick in the form of sanctions. The news right before the president's visit here that the U.S. was developing sanctions against Chinese entities that either conducted or benefited from cyber espionage. So was that on purpose? Was this part of the negotiating strategy to have these news reports out there? And do you think that that threat did help bring China to the negotiating table? Well, I think we've been clear from when we rolled out this policy last spring that uh, it was a policy that we intended to use and that we see it as a effective sanctions tool under the executive order that the president actually issued it last April. And we believe that ultimately we will need to use that tool in all likelihood to show that we are serious about deterring uh, and dealing with malicious activity in cyberspace. I can't really comment on the specifics of, you know, what the packages that we have under consideration, what they may or may not, you know, the particular entities that may or may not be in there. Um, But certainly we would be looking to really go after those actors that are clearly violating the the tenets of that particular executive order. So when you say that you do expect to use that tool, do you mean against China? Are you optimistic that this deal is going to hold and are sanctions the next step? Again, without sort of commenting on the specifics of any particular target, I do believe that we will ultimately use uh, this particular tool as one of the multiple tools that we have from diplomatic to military to law enforcement to intelligence capabilities. So it's important to have a broad spectrum of tools to go after what the bad guys are are doing. I can't really comment on whether it will include Chinese targets or not at this point. But so if the U.S. knows that China does engage in economic espionage, why not just put the sanctions on now? Why go for the agreement? Well, I think that when we really take a step back and look at it, you know, the reason you use any particular tools are to achieve certain goals. And I would argue that the goal is not simply to uh, use sanctions for sanctions' sake. The goal is to impose costs on malicious actors that are carrying out particularly egregious acts. If you look at what the sanctions executive order covers, it covers disruption of critical infrastructure, the theft of intellectual property and trade secrets of a significant size. So I think the the point of using that tool is that we need to impose those costs and impose and create that level of deterrence that imposing those costs can do. But it's never just for imposing those costs just 
to impose costs, but is to achieve a goal of decreasing the amount of malicious cyber activity that we are experiencing. So to that end, we also see it as very important that we cooperate with as many different countries as possible, whether we're talking about countries it's very easy for us to reach cooperation with or countries where it's more challenging, like with China. I want to push back on the idea of, so carrying these out is a sense of um, the hope is to impose costs. But the difference with the Cold War is that there's not equal vulnerability. So a fear on a great number of people, and I'm sure it's one of the within government as well, is if we do try and impose sanctions, particularly on a nation like China that we do a great deal of economic trade with, that in turn there will be greater costs imposed on American business to have access. That's always in the background of this discussion on sanctions. How are you thinking about that? Obviously not going into specific examples, but basically the idea of can we exact costs on individuals from another nation or governments without it reverberating back with greater costs to American business? So a couple of thoughts on that. One is I think that the costs on American business from the cyber activity that's going on are huge right now. And in some ways, we not even realize, uh, given that in cyberspace, you can steal something and it, the original is still there. So I think unlike some kinds of theft where the object uh, disappears and you lose the value of it, the uh, pernicious effect of cyberspace is you can lose the value of the intellectual property and not even realize it for some years to come. Second. I would say that those factors certainly do weigh in our calculations about how we are thinking about the use of any of these tools. And the fact that it is still challenging to do attribution in cyberspace, the fact that malicious actors typically use infrastructure owned by third parties, innocent third parties, to carry out their activities makes it also more challenging. So these kinds of considerations weigh in all of our calculations about any of the responses that we're thinking about using, whether it's a diplomatic demarche to use of a sanctions tool to use of other cyber technical operations. So all of those things factor into our calculations. And so you have something like OPM, which was huge and affected millions of people and occupied headlines for weeks and, and months. And what was it like to be the White House cybersecurity coordinator in a moment like that where there's such a huge breach within the government? I think it was terrifying and it was also an opportunity as well for us to really grapple with some very fundamental problems that we knew uh, were there, but really the OPM incident kind of laid bare. And I think that it also betrayed a lot of the continuing weaknesses that we have inside the government for managing these kinds of incidents. As a matter of fact, um, we've been working very hard on updating some of our policies and designing new policies to deal with a lot of the lessons that we learned coming out of the OPM incident. And I also think that it was almost hard to wrap your mind around how large it was, even for those of us that work breaches on a regular basis, sort of truly grasping the degree and the severity of the incident when it first starts being reported to you. It really took us even a few days to really sort of grapple with what we were really dealing with and really come to grips with the level of severity that we were talking about. I've joked that almost everybody that's come to this issue has got to go through the like seven stages of grief in order to actually really sort of uh, wrap their mind around what we're, what we're talking about. So how do you think that the mood in the White House has changed when it comes to thinking about cybersecurity as post-OPM? I would say that it's not so much been a mood change, but a continued evolution of the place in the hierarchy that cyber issues hold. They have steadily risen across this administration in their uh, seriousness and in the level with which we have to respond to them. And so I would say that 
OPM was merely one more example in a con- unfortunate continuing trend. I want to shift topics into uh, another one that gets a lot of discussion, which is information sharing. It's seemingly this this wonderful good. Um, everybody's always delighted by talking about it. But in execution, one of the complaints of private business is that they don't seem to be getting, at least from their perception, a lot out of information sharing with government, that, that the data that gets shared is often outdated, lackluster. And I think this also reflects that even people within government would say that sometimes we overclassify things. I'd love to know specifics rather than kind of lofty goals of what you're planning or hoping we can do to better support information sharing. So I think that you're absolutely right. When you talk about information sharing, I can usually walk into a room uh, of any of the events that I do, and if there are 50 people in the room, there are 65 opinions about what information sharing should be and what good is in that area. So I think that what we are trying to do is increase the amount of sharing about threat indicators and vulnerabilities and solutions that move back and forth between the government and the private sector. So we want to both increase the volume and the velocity. And eventually what we would really like to do in this space is create something that DHS and uh, Dr. Schneck over at uh, DHS talk a lot about, which is this concept of kind of a weather map for cyberspace, Um, kind of the same way that the National Weather Service takes data from a whole bunch of different sources, everything from elementary school weather kits to NOAA satellites, and fuses them into this picture that they push back out to the public about what the weather is going to be like. I would eventually like for us to be able to do something similar in cyberspace. And obviously, you know, the difference in cyberspace is despite us naming uh, hurricanes and things like that, Mother Nature is generally not, in fact, actually out to inflict harm. But I think that there are many analogies that you can, that you can use there. And ultimately, what that means is a lot of what we want to move is very technical level data. And it's going to have to be built at the at – Um, at the ground up, one kind of entity at a time. That's why the administration has been promoting the formation of the information sharing and analysis organizations so that we can have aggregation points that we can more effectively share with. It's why we continue to believe that a chunk of this is information sharing legislation on Congress's part. We need them to take action there as well. But that's not – that won't solve all of the problem because once you have this information being shared, then you actually have to do something with it. And that is true both within the government and within the private sector. So ultimately, what I would really like to see is that you have this information be structured in such a way that companies can then very easily take it and integrate it into whatever kind of cyber defenses that they have. And that this is done on an automated basis so that the defenses are updated very rapidly and we can actually use the strength of the internet and the way that the bad guys are using it against us right now, we can use that for us to work for our defenses. A lot of the concern about sharing information with the government obviously comes from the Edward Snowden leaks. But now we have OPM, which is also a very interesting flashpoint in the information sharing discussion because some people are saying information sharing might actually worsen cybersecurity because the government would be collecting more information and storing it in the government and that the track record just might not be that good. So how has this issue been coming up in your discussions with security professionals and companies? And do you feel like OPM increased this level of distrust about sharing with the government? It certainly didn't help. One thing to distinguish with OPM is, and I think that this is true not just of the government, but with many private sector companies, is that 
we are still grappling with what being a digital society means. And in many ways, we have digitized old analog files and didn't think through how that act of digitization changed the vulnerability. And if you think about it, the idea that OPM would have been a target for identity theft or espionage or any one of those other kinds of crimes that we're concerned about back in the 1970s, 1980s is kind of crazy, right? What were what was somebody going to do? They were going to stand in the hallway with file boxes making photocopies. I mean, it just it was inconceivable that you could I'm pretty sure that was an episode of The Americans. Yes, so, you know, you can't really do you could really do that uh, on at a scale that mattered. But once we made them digital, you could. And I think that what we are coming to grapple with is that the old ways of doing business within the federal government of assuming that not only is it every agency's responsibility for them to be accountable for protecting their information, but that we are expecting them to actually do the business of protecting their information may not be the right model for us to to use. So in that sense, I think that it is not wrong to say that the OPM incident has highlighted the need for the government to rethink how it does its cybersecurity for itself. Um, And it's certainly something that we are very interested in and are focused on within the White House. But I actually think it points up the fact that we even more desperately need this kind of information sharing to have that level of interaction between the private sector and the government to ensure that both sides can provide the level of protection that they're they're looking to do. I think ultimately this kind of information will not necessarily increase the vulnerability if, if the government has it any more than a private sector company having it because what will be the benefit of it is the amalgamation of it. It's the fusion of all of this information and then the actual taking the information and doing something with it. The information by itself is only of so much value if you don't actually use it to improve your defenses. One of the ways we frame this in the introduction is that this is also a people issue and there's also a people problem in this space. And I'm interested that the administration uh, has made a commitment to beefing up the number of people who understand cybersecurity within government. And we've seen a buildup in organizations like Cyber Command and DHS. But what about the other agencies out there in areas like you know, diplomacy or um, international trade innovation? And I think the value of this, of course, is not just to uh, develop better policy, but also hit what you were talking about before, making sure that we're recognizing the issues as they lay today. What are you hoping to see be put into place? And then to put a little tease on this on top, it's not just about creating positions, but filling them. So I'm thinking of, for example, the FBI having 40% of its new slots open. You know, how are you wrestling with the people problem? So it's one that we're very concerned with. It's also one that affects more than just the federal government. If you talk to anybody in industry, they will tell you that we are woefully short of cybersecurity professionals across the United States. So I think overall, we are working on various lines of effort to try to figure out how you entice more people into the government. How do you make the personnel rules for coming in and out of the government easier? Because I think for a lot of the cybersecurity professionals, the idea that we're going to be able to recruit people and have them stay in the federal government for a 35 or 40-year career is just not going to happen. I'm not sure it's going to happen just kind of in general with the way the workforce uh, is going, you know, whatever the occupational specialty, but that is certainly true in the tech and cybersecurity fields. So we need to make it much easier to move back and forth between the private sector and the federal government. We need to, I think, 
really think about infusing this kind of knowledge and capability across a number of different disciplines. So it's not just about the technical capacity, although that is certainly important, but it's also about having lawyers that are smart on cyber-related issues. As you mentioned, diplomats that have this as part of their portfolio that they work on, policy people that are smart on the, the policy issues, privacy expertise. And I think a lot of that is going to take a long time to build, but it's certainly one that we're focused on trying to come up with creative ideas uh, for how to, how to do that. I will say that it is one of the more challenging problems that we face. What are some of the creative ideas? Well, that's what we're trying to get uh, input from various places. I think certainly some of it, you know, if you see, I believe that, for example, the USDS, uh, U.S. Digital Services brand, where we've been able to bring in a lot of uh, really impressive talent from Silicon Valley to work on very specific problems, deploy them for a short time period and then send them back. Partnering them with people who've got a lot of experience inside the federal government has been very successful. I I really think we could stand to see a a cyber version of that created, for example. I think that would be really fascinating to to do. What would it require? Would it require a change in the law or is this executive order? I think we could probably do most of it under existing authorities. The interesting- What's holding us back? I mean, you you work in the White House. Do do we need to get McAfee elected? Is that what you're (laughs) telling us here? So- He's got a lot of plans. He does have plans. He does. (laughs) But I think that we are working towards whether or not we can do some things like that. I think some of it is really starting to put the senior level attention that we need to on these issues. And I would certainly say that one of the most profound changes from just my time in this role is the, the degree to which senior level folks are both understand the problem and are focused on it in some new and different ways. And so I'm, I'm actually hopeful that we can make progress on some of these issues. So just diving deeper into this too, I mean, you have, let's say you have a young millennial and they're trying to decide between going to work at a you know, Silicon Valley firm or coming to work in the government. What specifically about the government needs to change? I mean, is there a cultural thing that you would want to fix or is it just more money <laughs> that you would have to offer? What are some of the things that really get down deep into what you know, younger people or talent, top talent would actually need to be able to decide to come to Washington So and put we'll on never, a suit. Yeah, sure. <laughs> uh, maybe have, you know, relax the dress code. But we'll never compete on salary. That's just not going to happen. But I think that what we can compete on is a sense of mission and what uh, you can do inside the government and that you cannot do and the impact that you can have working for the government that is impossible to have in that same kind of way in much of the private sector. So what we need to be able to do is to help make it easier for people to get in so that the process doesn't take so darn long, to make it easier to move around and make it less bureaucratic to get things done inside the government once they're there. And I think it's also coming to that understanding that you're not recruiting them forever, uh, that you're recruiting these individuals to come in for a given period of time and that you will expect them to take their experience from in the government and take it out to the private sector. And then ultimately what we would hope is that they would come back later on and maybe do that two or three times over the course of a career now. Um, I think that is a much more reasonable expectation about how, uh, again, I think this is going to apply beyond just the tech and you know cybersecurity workforce. I think it's going to apply across much of the federal workforce. But I think it will be particularly true in the, in the technical and, and cybersecurity areas and that we need to just recognize that that's how the model is going to is going to work. 
One of the lures that we've often heard expressed for people to join government is they can work on, you know, not just missions of value, but more exciting missions, i.e. they can hack into something with a license if they're at certain U.S. government agencies. But that hits another interesting debate out there, which is hackback. Uh, should this be something that the private sector has in their, their toolkit? So from the man in the White House, hackback, uh, is it legal or not? Is it ethical or not? What are your thoughts on it? So I'm certainly not a lawyer to comment on all the legalities of uh, the precise legalities of anything, but I think it's a terrible idea for much of the private sector to uh, engage in that kind of activity that affects another person's networks. I think the primary reason for that is several fold, uh, one of which, as I mentioned earlier, attribution is still hard. And the likelihood of causing damage to an innocent third-party network is really high. And I would urge incredible caution for any private sector company that was considering taking that kind of action because the potential for causing unintended consequences is, is huge. It's one of the reasons why, from the government side, we've been very restrained in our thinking and uh, urge restraint uh, in that area because of that uh, very high but potential. But the way you're phrasing this is very important, where you're urging rather than outright saying, don't do it. Right. So, so there, there are certain <laughs> actions where, I, you know, you would say, don't do it. That's a violation of the law. Does you're the Second Amendment you're, you're, extend into cyberspace? So you're, you're, you're basically yeah. saying, be careful. So I have to be careful because I'm from the White House. I think my colleagues at the Department of Justice could probably give you a more definitive answer about what they think about the legalities of that. My personal belief is that it is not a wise policy to follow. And I think that that is one where the government and the private sector need to uh, – I think it highlights the fact that we have to be able to work much more uh, collaboratively with our private sector in order to help protect uh, the nation's networks. But I don't believe that uh, sort of issuing letters of mark and reprisal is uh, a wise course of action. Shifting over to the Internet of Things space, some of the recent hacks of Internet of Things related uh, devices, even cars that, you know, we had Chris Valasek on our podcast and he uh, helped force a recall of some 1.4 million cars. And he was one of the people who hacked it wirelessly with the reporter inside it, of course. So how do you see these controversial stunts affecting the discussion? Are you happy that they hacked that car? And are you happy that Chris Roberts, another researcher, you know, is making headlines about hacking into the United Airlines planes, supposedly? And just, I mean, what do you make of where we are in the discussion now and the role of stunt hacking and starting to affect the, the tenor of the debate? So in general, I'm obviously not a fan of, you know, like sort of the, the stunt versions of these things because I'm uh, in general, it, it's worthy of um, more careful thought and deliberation. That said, I certainly appreciate the value that the cybersecurity researcher community provides, and we've actually been very strong supporters of ensuring that that community can continue to do what it does uh, to find the vulnerabilities and to do responsible disclosure to the companies. That's actually something the White, this White House has supported very strongly, and we continue to do that. So I certainly believe that the net result of having researchers that are pushing on manufacturers to actually consider cybersecurity and not just time to market for products is very important. And I think that trying to figure out ways to have a more uh, productive relationship in some cases between the vendors and those cybersecurity researchers is something that we're interested in 
promoting. And there are different kinds, obviously, um, because I think one of the things that particularly struck me about the particular incident you were citing with uh, the vehicles is that that was actually a very well-constructed experiment and actually was uh, carried out uh, in multiple times and was uh, repeatable and was verifiable uh, in many different ways. Others of them are not uh, in that category and make wildly exaggerated claims about what they're able to do. Um, and that I don't think is actually helpful uh, to anyone. But I think in those cases, particularly where uh, you know you're, you're discovering the real vulnerabilities, I think that's that's a valuable service that the researchers do provide. It's just a pretty exciting time to be the White House cybersecurity chief. I mean, it seems like you know from car hacking to alleged plane hacking to OPM hacks. I mean, you've got a lot going on. So, I mean, did you ever think that you would be in this role? That you would be the cybersecurity chief of the U.S.? No, never occurred to me. I think that you are right, that it is an incredibly exciting time. It's one of the things that actually motivates me so highly to be in this position is that we are very much at the ground floor. Uh, there's a very much a feeling of a present at the creation uh, feel to what's happening, and it is a very exciting time. We are very much building the institutions and structures that I think will be in place for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And that's why I, in particular, tend to think of us as kind of in that same period as we were in post-World War II when we were building a lot of the international financial institutions uh, that are still in place today. Um, we are at that same nascent period where we're trying to figure out how to uh, deal with this issue that crosses so many boundaries and building the institutions and capacities to deal with it. So it is an incredibly exciting time. Well, we really appreciate you joining us. And there's a, a question that we end by asking all our guests, which is uh, there favorite, and favorite can be defined as love or love to hate, depiction of cybersecurity in the world of fiction and entertainment. So what's your, where do you pull from on this? So I would say just about anything involving Hollywood. Uh, generally, uh, the, oh come on, that that's like saying you know uh, we asked you to pick a so software will, package. You, you said anything related to computers. Yeah, I mean, come no, on, it's, specific character or story that either you love or you love to hate. So I will tell you that um, that I love to hate is the fact that uh, on any given uh, computer show you can pick any one of them that you like, it only takes less than 30 seconds to hack into anything. Um, drives me absolutely crazy because it's a lot harder than that. Ironically, the one that I still love that is actually really old is the movie Sneakers because I think it was way ahead of its time in terms of how prescient it was um, about the impact of uh, computer technology and privacy and other things like that. Great. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're quite welcome. Thanks, Michael, again for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll hear from John McAfee. But first, a word from our sponsor. In 2015, U.S. News and World Report ranked Arizona State University as the most innovative university in the nation. That innovation is clear in ASU's approach to real-world challenges like cybersecurity. As part of the university's Global Security Initiative, the ASU Center for Cybersecurity and Digital Forensics approaches the wicked problems of cybersecurity by bringing together collaborative research teams of world-renowned experts across academic disciplines to design solutions for industry and government. Here's Jamie Winterton, Director of Strategic Research at ASU's Cybersecurity Center, discussing the importance of taking a progress-driven, positive approach to the wicked problems in cybersecurity. I would characterize the approach right now as being very negative. There's a lot of 
fear, doubt, and uncertainty out there right now. And it makes a lot of people a lot of money. So I can understand why that is. But by thinking that everything is scary and everything is, uh, you know, guys wearing hoodies in a basement who are stealing everything you own or China is after you. Uh, people give up. They burn out on it. They hear so much of this, they get overwhelmed and they give up. It's a different conversation from the get-go. When you sit down with somebody and instead of try to scare them into opening up their wallet versus saying, well, let's talk about in a realistic way what your security posture looks like and what the types of threats you're facing are because not everybody is facing a state-sponsored type of threat. Um, we can have these more realistic conversations and so we develop better relationships and that develops trust. Once we have that trust, we can start learning what kind of solutions do we need to start creating for your problems. You can only make progress when you believe progress is possible, mm -hmm. right? If you don't believe it's possible, then there's no incentive for you to try. But if you have that proactive approach, you're empowered to dig into the problem, to investigate it more deeply, to think about it in ways that you would not have otherwise considered. Find ASU's Global Security Initiative online at globalsecurity.asu.edu. Up next, we have our interview with John McAfee. He's a security pioneer who saw the threats of viruses to companies before almost everybody else. And decades later, he wants to take on a crowded field of presidential candidates to become president of the United States. We talk about his candidacy, the cyber party, and why he thinks politicians just don't have a clue about technology issues that matter. So you've done a lot of things in your life. You're a software pioneer who developed and later sold McAfee Antivirus, which is one of the biggest antivirus companies to date. And you now you call yourself an eccentric millionaire and you're running for president. So we'll get to cybersecurity questions in a few minutes, but I think we all want to know, why are you running for president and why now? Well, it's not something I want to do, I can, I can assure you. My close friends and, and fans and advisors for over a year have been pushing me to do this. And um, I think I finally uh, woke up to, to the reality of our, our political situation and, and the incompetence of our, our current government and I think the array of candidates, uh, if you look at them closely, in, in my mind, I, I don't think are capable of solving the, the fundamental issues, so I jumped in. And so why didn't you join a party? You started what's, uh, what you're calling the Cyber Party. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, let me answer your first question. I, I didn't join a party because I think the parties are responsible for the nightmare that, that we live in now. Uh, the parties have become machines, hmm. um, and uh, once, you, once you enter one, uh, I think the, the the human heart is subdued, and and you just become part of that machine, and and machines cannot govern. You say that machines can't govern. I think we all agree with you there. But yet you're starting what's called the cyber party. So what are some of the things that you're going to bring to the table when it comes to technology, cybersecurity, and government surveillance? Seem to be pretty big issues. All right. The cyber party is not yet a machine. Okay, it, it's brand new. <laughs> we just started it. It does not have a history of of. Um, of impetus behind it. Uh, I started the cyber party because I, I believe that um, technology is the thing that's lacking within our government. We have candidates. Uh, Hillary Clinton believes that wiping a disk means taking a damn rag and wiping off your computer. So Trump machines is, can't govern, but the government needs some more machines. Donald Trump is proud of the fact that he's never written an email. And yet we're living in a world where the Chinese have literally declared war on us, and it's a cyber war. Uh, you know, they sucked up 14 million records from the Office of Program Management, including all of our top secret employees for the past 35 years. And all of our embedded agents are among those. Tens of thousands of embedded agents in foreign countries whose lives are at risk. The government has not told us what happened to those people. They just shrugged it off as, oh, well, 
uh, we made a mistake and we need counseling for our employees so that they feel better about themselves. And that's the absolute truth of what happens. Uh, well, that's an act of war and one of the greatest coups of espionage ever in the history of humanity. And yet we, we just pay little attention to it. So do you think we're already at cyber war then? Of course we are. What China has done is not just the Office of Program Management. It was the FBI, Homeland Security, Department of Defense. Uh, they are collecting all the necessary information that will allow them to do an all-out offensive. They could take down uh, all of our electrical substations here in America, and we would be without power forever. We would wake up one morning, and we'd have no money. We'd have no records of anything. And we operate. An entire society depends upon uh, the cyber technology to exist. And China could wipe us out instantly. So how um, would you deal with China if you were if you were president in particular after, as you're mentioning, the OPM breach? Well, first of all, I would, I would recognize the fact that they are way ahead of us in cyber technology and cyber security and, and the weapons of, of cyber warfare and do something. And I, would, I would immediately hire some of the brightest technological minds that, that I know. And, and trust me, I, I know most of them out there. Dealing with China also requires some sort of diplomatic response or potentially some are even saying uh, sanctions or military responses is another option at some point. I mean, what would your position be on some of those areas? The Chinese president was recently in Washington visiting. I mean, if you were president, how would you handle the recent cyber well, espionage and breaches? I, I would not have done what was just done, which is ask China to stop doing it. Please stop, stop attacking us. I mean, do you realize the, the futility and the insanity of, of, of that statement? It's like Churchill in the 1940 calling Hitler and saying, look, I have an idea, just stop attacking us. What insanity is that? No, I, I, I think I, I, would, I would relate to China in, in the, the way that our relationship exists, which is we're at war. Uh, I wouldn't do a military response uh, because a military response is, is almost futile in this day and age. Seriously, all of our military weapons are computer-controlled, and they were designed in an age where the word hacking did not even exist. I mean, I, I, worked, for, I worked for Lockheed um, in 1985, 86, and 87 on, on a black program, which is a program that doesn't really exist, or doesn't officially exist, uh, working on uh, high-tech weaponry. And I, I can promise you, at that day and age, we didn't know what hacking was. It was not something we even thought about. We just wanted to build the computers to control the, the, the weapons. Well, so you have to believe me. If, if two hackers can go on the Internet and take control of a Jeep, which they did two months ago when it was published in Wired magazine, run it off the road while the driver is frantically trying to regain control, tell me that, that hackers in China, who are much more clever, cannot take control of our, our, our missiles, our planes, our ships, and turn them against ourselves. It, it, sounds, it sounds bizarre, but this is the facts of life. This is the reality. This is the world that I have specialized in my entire life, and I promise you this is what can happen. You've talked a little about what you wouldn't do, but what should the role of the U.S. government be? Right. Um, okay. And so I'm, I'm explaining the, the first sort of business is to, is to bring technology into the government to, to create a cybersecurity system so that it's not as easy or even try to make it impossible for not just China but Russia or anyone to hack into our systems and take control. And that's an easy thing to do. It's not, it's not, quick. It's not quick. It will take time. Uh, but it really requires bringing technologists into the government and, and mm -hmm. educating and making people aware. I can do that. That's a simple process. Uh, analyze existing systems, find out what needs to be done. Some of them will have to be thrown away and started over from scratch. But clever technologists in this day and age, given the tools that we have, 
can restructure these systems in short order. So that no no effort so far has been placed in, in, in doing that within the government. Here in Washington, too, members of Congress even joke that they're in the flip phone caucus. So, I mean, how would you describe the current gap between technologists and policymakers that there is now? Would you hire just a slew of people that you know from the private effects sector and bring them into the government? Well, first of all, the, uh, here's an example of ridiculousness. All the talk about banning uh, encryption. Uh, you realize that encryption is nothing more than the, the cyber world equivalent of whispering. If I can whisper to my wife at a dinner table, like, you know, let's go home. Uh, and I don't have to, you know, get government approval to do that. Yet if I wanted to do that when she's on the other side of town, uh, and I wanted to encrypt our communication so I can whisper to my wife, they're talking about banning things of that nature. Uh, the NSA is, is demanding backdoors in software, which will allow the NSA and other government agencies to get in and see what we're doing. Well, that, that also allows anybody to get in and see what we're doing. I mean, it's insane. So, so the policymakers are making, making decisions based on a total misunderstanding of technology. We have to educate people. We have to, we have to let them know. Right. And so how do you feel about the reforms made so far um, when it comes to government surveillance after the Edward Snowden leaks? And what more would you do to reform it if you were in office? Here's the problem. We have become the enemy. The citizens have become the enemy. When you're standing in line at the TSA and your shoes are off and your belt is off and your personal belongings are, are being closely scrutinized and you're standing with your hands in the air waiting to be patted down, do you feel protected? I don't. I feel like I'm the enemy. And if you feel like you're the enemy, maybe you are. Governments sometimes turn paranoid, and when they turn paranoid, they fear things, and the thing they fear most is the populace, and, and we have reached that point. I don't want a government that looks at me as the enemy. I want a government that looks at me as the citizenry and someone that they are there to serve, and the NSA is asking me and you and all of us to open the kimono and let them examine the most private parts of our lives so that they can assure you and me that we are not the enemy they are trying to protect us from. Please see the insanity of that. And yet we, we just blindly go, oh, okay, that makes sense. But it doesn't. It really does not. So they have to be curtailed. You know, if, if we're really spying on someone, please, let's spy on the people who are the real enemies. Let's not spy on the citizenry. There's something inherently twisted uh, about what has happened. And Edward Snowden, uh, you know, whether you want to call him a, a hero or, or the enemy of the state, we all needed to know what he told us, trust me. Would you pardon Snowden? Of course I would. And so I, what is the role of technology in both your campaign and also in your decision-making? I've found it really interesting how you've talked about some of these proposals that you might have, which seem to include also getting rid of the uh, TSA entirely, but you've said that they can't be plans that you would do until the American people weigh in. Do you think that technology could help with this type of direct connection to the president and input on policy? Well, of course. Here's what we're doing, for example. We have developed software which is going to go live uh, the first week of November that will allow me to talk to all the American people. They download an app, and there I am on your screen once a week. Also, the technology allows the American people to give feedback to me. We have software that will parse. Parsing is a technical term for making sense of communication. Right? It's making sense of a sentence or a statement. So let's say 10,000 people ask the same question, but in 10,000 different ways. The software will parse all of this and say, oh, this is all just one question. And then give me the top questions, the top 10, or the top 10 comments, and then I will address those. It is a way of me interfacing and, and debating the American people personally. Oh, why should I debate Donald Trump? He's not going to vote for me no matter what I say. <laughs> neither, will him, neither will Hillary. But the American people, that, that's the important ones. So we have already putting that technology in place. And every month we're going to be putting out new apps 
that make voters more aware and make the process of choosing more realistic. For example, our, our first app, which is coming out in two weeks, is a, a candidate awareness app. It's, it's kind of like a mini Twitter. We will allow all the candidates to provide every day 500 characters. It's like a, a large tweet, okay, that will be sent to everybody who has the app. Uh, and let's say you're following three candidates, and you tell the app, I just want to know what these three candidates have to say today about whatever they want to say. So every day you will you'll hear something, and in 500 characters you have to cut down your rhetoric and just get to the meat of the subject, like in Twitter. There are more than a dozen Republicans and a handful of Democrats who are running um, in uh, 2016. And do you think that your personal focus on cybersecurity and privacy as campaign issues will impact the discussion in this presidential race? Do you think that other candidates are going to start to focus more on these issues as well? Well, of course. In fact, already just by the columns that I write, I write a column for International Business Times and Digital Trends and Silicon Angle. Just from those, already people are starting to talk about cybersecurity more. So I went to um, uh, Australia two weeks ago, and I wrote a, uh, an article about the Australian uh, Department of uh, Digital Transformation. And two days ago, the CIA put out a press release saying they are now implementing a Department of Digital Innovation. I believe that to, to some extent, the noise that I'm making has, has impacted that. But, but that's not what I'm here to do. I'm not here just to, to change the conversation. I really think that, that the country needs me, and it needs a technologist, and it needs someone who has real-world experience. I mean, I've run companies. I know you cannot write a paycheck if you've got no money in the bank. And you certainly cannot loan friends money if you've got no money. So you said in your presidential announcement video that this country's founding fathers, quote, could not have envisioned a world where spy cameras are hidden in cactuses. Could you say That's more correct. about that? Spy cameras are hidden in cactuses in Arizona. Uh, four months ago, uh, it was revealed that uh, one of the municipalities had actually placed spy cameras in cactuses of all places. Um, and you can you can Google that on the web. But forget about the cactuses. If you're in a city now, walk out on the street corner, look up, and count the cameras. I guarantee you there's more than you can count. They're on the, the traffic lights. They're on the, the corners of buildings. They're looking out, out of windows of shops. I mean, we are watched mercilessly by everyone constantly. But that's all I'm pointing out. The spy cameras and cactuses, I just thought that was the weirdest. <laughs> the yeah. strangest. No, for sure. And it occurs to me, too, that you've uh, experienced firsthand how technology and information that's collected or posted about you can affect your life. I mean, the reporters who actually went to see you when you were on the run posted some pictures that had metadata still attached to authorities, you know, could find where you were and you were arrested. So do you think that the average American understands just how much information about them could be available online or is collected by them, either by authorities or, or by companies? And what are the risks involved in this? Well, I don't think they are aware, uh, because if they were, we would all be on the streets in outrage, carrying signs. We'd be recalling our congressmen. We would be yelling out the windows, I'm angry, and I'm not taking it anymore. So obviously, they're not aware. But part of my job for the next year is to make them aware, to provide information to the voters. And look, this is, this is the world you're living in. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a tragic nightmare, and you're living it. You just have not noticed it. And people are trying to tell you, uh, Google, the NSA, if you have nothing to hide, why do you care? Well, I'm sorry, that is the most insane of all things, privacy. Privacy is something that we choose every moment of the day. When you check out the, at the grocery store, you may say hello to the clerk or it's nice weather today. You do not reveal the most intimate parts of your life. You choose a level of privacy for that person and your close friends, some of them closer than others. 
different levels of privacy for everyone. So do you think that people have do you think that people have privacy in today's digital era? Well, we all have some degree of privacy left. You know, I don't think there are many cameras in our bedrooms. They're not out in the woods. They're not on boats, the fishing boats in the ocean. Uh, We still have some privacy left. We can still whisper. We can still whisper to the ones we love or our friends or even a stranger if we choose to. So we have some left and we, we can't lose that. And we have to get the rest back that we have lost. But yeah, we're short. We still have privacy to a very small degree, but we have it and we can exercise it. And, and we do. Uh, if people understand that without privacy, we would have chaos. Well, what do you think would happen if everyone knew everything about everyone else? We are judgmental creatures. We're jealous. We have anger. We have, we have fear. There would be chaos. We would be judged mercilessly by everyone constantly. Society would collapse. Privacy has developed over, over many millenniums as a necessary component of a smoothly functioning society. And if you doubt that, just try to imagine again a world in which all of your deepest secrets were known to everyone. Even the, the most pristine and clean of us would shudder. At that thought. And so shifting over to the cybersecurity side of things, you actually worked at Lockheed Martin in the 1980s, where that's uh, apparently where you decided to start your own company to fight back against computer viruses, which were just starting to affect personal computers. And now, 30 years later, I mean, what do you think about the product and the company? I know that you sold it years ago, but what do you think of that? And, and how do you see the threats evolving since the time you started uh, McAfee to now? Uh, McAfee, like all companies, grew and, and became unwieldy. Uh, this is just one of the natures of technology and entrepreneurism. Companies start, they grow, they get too large to, to be quick on their feet, and they're replaced by new companies. This is how the world has operated since the beginning of time. If not, we would still be riding horses and buying buggy whips. <laughs> but no, those, uh, those companies passed and were surpassed by things with greater technology, like the piston engine, uh, electricity, the light bulb. So this is just the nature of life. McAfee just got to that point a little too fast in my mind where it was unable to function in a world of technology that changed almost daily. And as a result, the product became unwieldy, unfriendly, and unlike. So do you really get a lot of emails uh, asking about how to uninstall it? Somebody? Of course. <laughs> the, half of the world still thinks that because I'm John McAfee that I'm still responsible for that nightmare. No, I'm not. Which is why I made that bizarre video two years ago saying, look, here's how to uninstall the software. I don't know if you've seen it. It got 6 million <laughs> views. It's not a very polite video, but it was the absolute truth. All of those emails that I read were valid, real mm-hmm. emails that I had received. I didn't make any yeah. of that up. And so how have you seen the threats evolve since the time uh, you started McAfee until now? And what do you think is most needed to defend against them in, today, in today's time? When I started McAfee, computer viruses were really the only real threat. Uh, since that time, technology has advanced in leaps and bounds uh, both on the plus side and, and, the, and the negative side. The black hat hackers mm-hmm. have awesome power today. Awesome power. You know, I go to DEF CON every year. I keynoted last year, and, and this year I was swamped by supporters everywhere I went. Uh, and DEF CON is the ultimate hacking conference. You know, 50,000 people, 50,000 hackers, both white hat and black hat. And it is horrifying to attend the demonstrations where people show you what they can do. Yeah. People could, could tap into the Tennessee Valley Authority and shut down all of the electricity to the East Coast as simple as pie. Why it hasn't happened, I don't know. Blind luck? Are they not waiting for the right time? I don't know. But if you knew what I knew about what is possible, you would lose sleep at night. So when I started McAfee, there were a few threats. Now 
everything is a threat. A 12-year-old in Siberia, if he has access to the Internet and a smartphone, could wreak havoc. So uh, one of our last guests on this podcast uh, last month was Chris Valasek, who made headlines for wirelessly hacking a Jeep while a reporter drove on the highway. Speaking of evolving threats, let's talk about the Internet of Things. What's the role for policymakers, if any, to get involved, to regulate this? Or I don't, I don't think they do. I think, that, I think that Chrysler Corporation woke up. I mean, if not, Chrysler Corporation will just disappear. Corporations understand enough to know that they have to protect themselves. They have to. They're almost like living entities. So all, I think the government does not need to get involved in corporations. The government needs to get involved in its own problems. The lack of awareness, the absolute illiteracy about cybersecurity and cyber science within the government. Chrysler Corporation will take care of itself. If it doesn't, it will be replaced. I don't worry about these things. Uh, what I worry about is the infrastructure that the government largely controls that could bring this country to its knees and make America no longer America. And so you've also hired a, the researcher who says that he hacked the United Airlines entertainment system as your chief technology officer to advise you, Chris Roberts. So, I mean, why him and what's your big concern in the airline space? Well, uh, because number one, he's a very good friend of mine. He's been a friend for, for years. Uh, and he is one of the smartest hackers on the planet. Uh, and in spite of what he did, you may say that was bad judgment, to call it what you will. I'm less concerned about that. None of us are perfect. I'm more concerned about the heart, the human heart, and he has one. And if you have a pure heart, no matter what your faults are, no matter what uh, lack of judgment you may have, you will stumble through the darkness and eventually reach the light. I, I believe that. Call me what you want, you know, a dreamer. I, I, I don't care. I'm 70 years old. I have seen more than most people could ever dream of seeing. And I promise you, I believe that to the bottom of my heart. And so, so in the airlines space, though, I mean, what is your biggest concern with airplanes? Do you think that the, you know, planes really can fly sideways? And, uh, you know, is this one of your main concerns about infrastructure or you yes, know, it is? It is, because not only can you hack into an entertainment system and take control of an airplane, you can do it over the Internet now. You can do it over the Not internet, and, and it's, been, it's, it's been proven. Uh, this is scary. We have the TSA, which is trying to keep people f uh, with guns and, and armaments and getting on the airplane, which they totally have failed at. And in the meantime, that's not going to be the threat. Why would someone try to get on an airplane with a bomb knowing he's going to go down when the same person could sit comfortably at home in the living room and bring down the plane over the Internet? So what can be done on this front? I mean, what, what do the airline companies or, you know, who else needs to get involved to fix this? Here's the other, to the other issue. Back to the same point. United Airlines and Boeing. Once the problem is revealed, if they do not take action, then they are as crazy as crazy gets. I believe that action will be taken. Awareness and knowledge is the key. Letting people know, oh, look, you built something, and here's the problem. And if, if it's not fixed, your company will disappear. Well, that company has stockholders and obligations. And I promise you, those stockholders will come in and make changes if these things aren't fixed. So I, I have faith in, in, in the American system of business and in, in the idea of corporations. Corporations is the embodiment of an entity composed of human beings. And if there's any sanity in this world, the corporations will manage to fix this. Again, it, it's the government that concerns me. And so we've, uh, we've talked a little bit about Chris Roberts, um, the researcher, but more generally, who do you, would you say is the biggest badass in information security right now? You mean by government or person? No, just whose work do you respect? Who do you think is just, you know, the, the most interesting, who has the most interesting research or um, security well, stuff well, going on? Me, of course. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I, I write. I write for International Business Times. I write for Digital Trends and Silicon Angle. And if you read, I've written thirty or forty articles. And if you read them, they're all innovative and they all bring bring light to something that no one else has talked about. I'm seven years old, and all I've done my entire life has been cybersecurity. And if, if I don't have an interesting approach. Then, then I have I have failed. I'm certainly the oldest in the field. I've been doing this yeah. since computers. It wasn't were meant first to be invented. mutually exclusive for sure. But uh, so I want to do actually just a quick uh, series of questions, almost like a lightning round, presidential lightning round. So, are, are you up for that? Oh, you're putting me you're putting me to the test. Okay, yes. let's do this. All right. So let's say you know you're elected president. Who is the first world leader that you would call? Well, it probably would be Putin. I think he's got the most realistic take on the world, and say, look, you know. We, we've totally messed everything up. And, and what you said was absolutely right. You know, I apologize, my predecessors. Can we sit down and just talk? Next would be China. And I would say, look, you know, I know what you're doing. Everybody knows what you're doing. Listen, uh, we're, we, are, we are going to defend ourselves. Uh, and we're not going to allow this to continue. And, you know, you can go and beat on somebody else or you can face the consequences. Yeah. And so what is one thing you would do in your first 100 days in office? I would pardon every marijuana smoker in prison, everyone. Number two, I would hire many thousands of technologists uh, and put them to task at finding out what the weaknesses and all the systems are and come up with a solution in the shortest period of time. I would disband the TSA. I might just send the people home and continue to pay their salaries because the salaries are less than $2 billion. The budget is $8 billion. By doing okay. that, we save $6 billion, which we can put into something else. So better national currency, U.S. dollar or Bitcoin? I think electronic currency will come eventually and will have to be adopted. Whether or not it's Bitcoin remains to be seen. There are serious problems with Bitcoin technically, and there are serious advantages. But an electronic currency has to, has to come. There's no question. Whether it's Bitcoin or not, that, that, that might be the question. Interesting. And so what would you want in your Oval Office? I want to have one gigabit upload and download to the Internet, which is not there now. What is your favorite depiction of cybersecurity in fiction? Favorite as in it's great and you love it, or favorite as in you love to hate it. This can be a book, this can be a movie, TV show, you name it. Love oh, it, favorite as in mercy. <laughs> Okay, that, that, that's a very difficult one. If I might go all the way back to, um, you know, the, the 80s. Uh, let's see, let me think about that. Favorite cybersecurity in fiction. It, it would have to be... Uh, one of the Korean films, I think, 2034 would be the name of the movie. Um, okay. And it's not just about cybersecurity. It's about uh, the cyber world where, you know, we are interfacing with robots and, and, and trying to love them. And, but it's, it's the whole thing about cyber science. That's um, interesting. Do you think that you love it because you think that that is realistic? Uh, or? Because it's very realistic. And in terms of books, it would have to be Neuromancer, which is one of the oldest mm. about cyber cyber issues. The most brilliant, innovative uh, sort of piece of fiction that, that on, on cyber issues and cyber science that I've ever read. It's where the, the brain itself interfaces. Okay, so those two things. Great. Well, thank you so much. Interesting question. No one's asked me that before. Yeah, well, it's been, we like to, you know, gather this reading and watching list from all of our guests. So thank you so much for joining us. We're very glad You're to welcome. have you. Thanks again to Michael Daniel for a great conversation and to John McAfee for joining us this month. And again to Arizona State University for sponsoring this episode. And please join us next month when we interview more of cybersecurity's biggest leaders and thinkers. You can subscribe to us on New America's iTunes and SoundCloud at the Cybersecurity Podcast. And I'm on Twitter at Peter W. Singer. And you can follow me at Sarah Sorcher. Sign up for Passcode at csmpasscode.com. This podcast was directed by John Williams and Amanda Gaines. Talk to you in a month. 
Thank you for listening to this podcast from New America and the Christian Science Monitor. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Music thanks to MK2 for their songs, The Big Score, and Cold Killa. To learn more about Passcode by the Christian Science Monitor, please visit passcode.csmonitor.com. To learn more about New America, please visit newamerica.org.